we thought, why don't we get together and sort of play some of our favorite albums in sequence? And we'll change it every month and try to pull in different contributors. It'll be a way of building music community, but also, you know, we'll all learn how to kind of develop our skills in the process, learn how to develop a capacity for interpretation, and also just connect with our fans and fans of Atlanta music in a new way. So it kind of became a discovery platform in that way where people would come and they'd find their new artists. We used to say, find your new artists while singing your old favorite song. That's Micah Dalton, co-founder of ATL Collective. I play guitar and sing. What do you, let me see, what can I sing? I'm your Venus, I'm your fire, your desire. I sing that all the time. As he looks back at the organization's launch in 2009. On today's show, we talk with a few members of the team to learn more about the mission, music, and moments that make ATL Collective one of Atlanta's most creative, engaging, and inclusive organizations. From Atlanta, you're listening to Peace and Prosperity. I'm Jeff, and that's Julia. We're a dad and daughter duo sharing stories around Atlanta. Our episode is in honor of one of my oldest and dearest friends. When I first moved back to Atlanta, we went to the ATL Collective's Almond Brothers Eat a Peach album show together at the Atlanta History Center. And while at a recent show, she suggested the idea for this episode. She also just got married in May, so our 18th episode, which is extra lucky, is dedicated to Marissa and George. To set the stage of what today's episode is about, we want you to experience an ATL Collective show with one of my all-time favorite bands, The Beatles, The White Album, at Terminal West from July 2017. This is a quiet one. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life. Let's rewind a bit further and go back to the beginning with Micah to find out what sparked the start of ATL Collective. Co-founder was David Berkeley, who's another singer-songwriter. He lives in Santa Fe now, but I ran into him in Dancing Goats in Decatur. We had played a show together at the basement in Nashville. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he, he's like, well, he and his wife had just moved back from an island off of France. He and I reconnected and eventually ended up approaching him about doing an open mic at what was Danaman's in the Fourth Ward. It's across from, uh, now it's Sister Louise's church. It's kind of catty corner to the sound table. And we thought, man, we don't want to do a... Definitely do not want to do an open mic. We don't want to manage an open mic. That's something that seems a little bit like it could take up a lot of time. And thought we do want to do something. We want to bring our friends together and do something that kind of needed to, we wanted to develop, but we also wanted to, it personally as artists, but we also wanted to kind of network. But artists don't naturally network. We don't have like networking events that people go to. We really just want to play music together. So we find local restaurants to donate food or People would bring their own drinks, so we did uh, Blood on the Tracks with Bloody Marys, Bob Dylan, and then Fleetwood Mac and Cheese, uh, <laughs> just as a shtick to get people there, you know? You can take a look at the original posters and lineups going all the way back to those first shows on atlcollective.org, their website. The artwork is beautiful and captures the unique story behind each performance, and it's created by a local branding and design partner. 
Three Owl. Yes, it's my kind of art to collect. I love posters. Julia, maybe you can get me a few of those vintage posters for Father's Day. Hint, hint. Oh, I know. I'll get right on that. But first, let's get back to how a show goes from idea to action. You're at a show or you're just hanging out with somebody talking about records like we do. Someone's like, man, I love this record. You're like, oh, really? Do you think you would want to do that? <laughs> it's so informal oftentimes. Sometimes it's more formal, but I can't, I can name, there's so many times that it, it's been just sort of communally surfaced, you know, you're just hanging out and you realize, all right, let's figure out where this can be, how we want to tell the story, who needs to be involved, what time of year. So we wanted to know if Micah has a favorite show so far. It was difficult for him to choose, but ultimately he said... My favorite is probably when we did what Marvin Gaye's What's Going On early on, probably 2011, like two years old. And that was, uh, I enjoyed it because I loved the album. Just that's, that's one of the first albums my parents kind of played for me regularly. But also that was one of the first shows where a lot of different scenes came together out of a shared love for one album and started to see, wow, this isn't really done anywhere, certainly in the city. And it's really powerful when people come together around a shared love for an album because ego kind of leaves the room and people really get behind it. So it kind of creates a musical moment within itself. It's challenging for me to choose too, but I love the show we went to on Chess Records, which was founded in Chicago in 1950 by two Jewish immigrants from Poland, brothers Leonard and Phil Chess, introduced America to some of the greats in blues for sure, but ultimately in soul, gospel, and early rock as well. It was such a great show that was produced in partnership with another pioneering Atlanta cultural organization, the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. And it was creatively driven by its talented piano-playing executive director, Joe Alterman. Joe had an amazing concept picked out. Joe sort of wanted to figure out how to bring the, the sounds of chess records alive with an Atlanta sound. So we worked together to try to figure out Really, Robbie Hanley, one of our main music directors, worked with Joe to try to figure out, okay, how do we do this? Collaboration is crucial to their vision since its launch and as it looks to the future. I'm Rhiannon Klee. I'm the director of programming and marketing for ATL Collective. Atlanta could use specifically the creative community as a lot of the arts organizations, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, Alliance Theater, Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, um, even Arts ATL, you, I could go on and on. There are so many of them. But we need to collaborate more. And so that's really what we are harnessing and kind of preparing for next year. I can't speak to what those are at at the moment. I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. Um, so <laughs> that's a Michael Scott quote. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything until it's like ready to go, but we'll definitely keep you all updated. Their executive director, Russell, gave us some more insight into that future vision. My name is Russell Goshalk. I'm the executive director of ATL Collective. I think there's also a, a big opportunity, which maybe I'll just be stitious enough, to go out on tour. We've talked about what would it look like if ATL Collective played other communities in the South or maybe even other communities nationally? Uh, the shows that we put on, we put a lot of time and effort into curating it, rehearsing it, um, getting ready for this moment. And for the most part, it's a, a one-time experience. And we've had some really successful shows. And so we've thought about what it would look like, you know, what kind of partnerships would we want? Uh, what kind of friends and allies would we need to get on the road? And uh, that's a dream. Hopefully it's not too far away. 
It's incredible how much curation and planning goes into each show to make it special. And the albums up for consideration have to be at least 20 years old before they can make the cut. The albums are chosen about a year out. So, for example, in June, we will begin talking about 2020. And we've got actually already have the first three months of, of 2020 mapped out. Um, and the curation of, of the show, we do have, I mean, each show has a different cast and crew. There may be some some repeat uh, repeat folks, but it's it's very new every single time. So the curation process, we do try to bring in a lot of, bring in the new with the old, um, so to speak, I guess, um, just so that, you know, we're keeping the fresh talent. We're bringing in some up-and-coming musicians, some younger talent. Um, one of my favorite shows that we curated is the Funk to the People show. And this show was one that we partnered with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And instead of curating music around an album, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of James Brown's 1968 Boston concert. Um, and the reason why that is significant is because it happened the day after Dr. King was assassinated. And the reason why that concert was so important and why it deserved to be celebrated is because it helped quell a lot of the riots that happened that were slayed, that were happening all over the country and were going to happen in, in Boston. And, you know, a lot of people talked about canceling it. James Brown and the mayor of Boston decided, you know what, the people need this. So they did it. They did the concert and, um, and it actually did help, uh, quell the riots in Boston. And so when I talk about bringing in the old with the new, we, we brought in Booker T. Jones for that and, and he's Booker T. Jones of, uh, the MGs. And he was, not only is he an iconic figure, um, particularly with uh, funk music, but he was the forefront of the civil rights movement and was really dear friends with Dr. King. So we had him, you know, as a guest star for this show and a cast and crew of about eight other musicians, um, Atlanta musicians who like absolutely idolize um, Booker T. Jones. And so... So I think that was probably the pinnacle of of our success and and kind of fulfilling you know that that sort of element of uh, of the collective and how we curate our shows. David Bennett, who works with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, um, had been talking with another member of our team about the concept, and we had been talking about it with him for a couple of years, and it turned out that the fiftieth anniversary was coming up and it was just, it was David Bennett's really, really great idea. And, and he, he brought it to us and we were of course honored to go through with it. And it was, it was a, it was an amazing moment. I think that Atlanta has so much to offer culturally and musically and in all these ways, but I think there's just so many unsung heroes that are part of our series that have been part of this market playing, whether it be some, some touring, some wedding band work, some all kinds of different work to piece together a life. But there's some of the they're world-class musicians, world-class artists, I think, that are right right here in, in our midst that haven't been discovered in the way that they have in maybe in other markets. So I'm most proud of them for sort of building this with us and championing this with us. And if we didn't have a lot of artists and musicians who really got excited about this concept and really just wanted to sort of join the family of musicians that we were starting to build, we, we certainly would not be here. So Our research department, a.k.a. Julia, 
spent many hours looking into whether or not the ATL Collective concept exists in other cities. So far, we have not found anything quite like it. We asked Micah more about what is it about Atlanta that makes it unique. Because of multiple communities, the hip-hop community, the jam band community, it's, it's collaborative by nature. A lot of what comes out of the city is, I feel like, is not in necessarily in response to an industry presence. It's just sort of grows out of the soil, you know? So I think that really helps us in terms of what our aim that I think that's distinctly Atlanta. And like, I think that probably happens in other places, but I can't speak to it as fully. I think musicians and artists are still able to sort of kind of live here and be close to Atlanta and work in Atlanta without it being too expensive. Whereas, you know, in New York, it's harder and harder to do that. Um, so I just think it's a really special place and it's been a fun place to try to pull people together. And there's an op- there's an openness, I think, because that culture of collaboration is kind of underneath most most of the music scenes. That commitment is evident in all they do, from who they feature on the stage to how they run operations behind the scenes. The organization is altruistic in nature. I mean, we're giving the lion's share of everything that we make, whether it's through ticket sales or any kind of, of underwriting or sponsorship, back to the artists. You know, it was it was time to make the jump, and we're very thrilled. And- in his role as executive director, Russell oversaw the transition to a nonprofit. Easy transition because I've worked in the nonprofit space for close to a decade. And to bring in some of the uh, best practices of nonprofit work in terms of board development and managing a team and aligning a mission, a lot of the stuff that we've put a lot of work into the past six to nine months are, are things that I've been familiar with. I've felt really energized by our nonprofit transition. It has definitely been a change. Everyone really believes in why we did it. Retouched upon the you know, natural ethos of the individuals of the organization to be giving and to support the artist community. And now we have a mission that, that illustrates that. And our new mission is to enrich Atlanta's music community by connecting artists to professional development, financial resources, and exposure to audiences. And I'd like to break that down. The first part is enriching Atlanta's music community, and we think it's important to support both the musicians and the music lovers. Uh, But really why we exist as an organization is to uplift and celebrate the musicians. You know, a lot of nonprofits exist to support uh, a vulnerable population, to really help out the people that need it most. Um, and if you were to look at the musicians versus the music lovers, I think a lot of people would agree that the musicians need help. And it's not just financial resources, it's professional development. That's intentionally the first thing in our mission. We want to be able to connect artists to um, real skills like uh, building a brand, doing your taxes, things that may not come naturally to creatives. Uh, and exposure to audiences is really important for us. That is a unique challenge of the modern artist. You have streaming music now, so it's really easy to get your song up uploaded and available to the public, it's really difficult to find the ears and to get people to um, know about your your work. Uh, And so we have really focused our attention on the artist. Um, As a nonprofit, though, we also want to remember that we exist for all of Atlanta, which includes the non-musicians. And having that sort of direction, I think, is a really healthy thing for the organization. And to celebrate all of their awesome work, ATL Collective is raising funds with some fun perks if you donate. You can give directly through their site, and any proceeds donated via our podcast platform support page on Anchor will pay it forward to ATL Collective this June. 
Join us in supporting this awesome Atlanta institution. We hope to see you at an upcoming show. Thanks for listening to Peach and Prosperity. Give us a review wherever you listen. Follow along on our adventures on Instagram and Facebook. Special thanks to Element ATL, a co-working and co-creating space on the Beltline, powered by Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta, for hosting us for our interviews. Bye for now. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly.